0: You're listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Sandra, for those who haven't come across you online, introduce yourself and tell our listeners what we're talking about today.
1: My name is Sandra Leal, and I'm the Executive Vice President at Tabula Rasa Healthcare, and I'm also the current president of the American Pharmacists Association. So today we were going to speak a little bit about my leadership journey, steps I've taken uh, within my career to be here today.
0: I think some people, when they hear about being president of the American Pharmacists Association and many other organizations that someone might be the president of, I think they're a little bit shocked when they say, oh, wait a minute, you actually have a job on top of this. The presidency is a leadership role, but it's in addition to your day job, in quotes.
1: That's right. It is. And and that people ask me that question all the time, like, how are you able to handle that and work-life balance and you have a family and then you have a real job? Um, But, you know, I think one of the things that makes this possible and makes it happen is that a lot of the work that I'm doing with APHA is very much in line with a mission and uh, the work that I'm already doing with my current with my current
0: employers. I know that in general, you have a lot of nice goals for pharmacy, but I know that on your LinkedIn about me page, or at least the hash marks, we talk about digital health and Mm -hmm. telehealth and things like that. Does the association... I mean, you don't really run on a platform necessarily, but do they encourage you to bring along your flavor of what you're adding to the profession? I imagine the answer is yes, but how does that work out? Do they kind of allow your pet projects to come in and in your case, maybe more of the digital front versus somebody else who's maybe bringing in... Academia or bringing in personal nutrition or something like that
1: they do you know it's it's funny how that happens, but so you know you you first a lot of us are on the board before we even get into oh, right. the presidency position, and a lot of us represent certain sectors of the profession, some are academia, some are community, some are health systems, some of them are work for um like retailers for example, or even health plans. it's just it's just a very diverse group. Uh, board members. And all of us tend to have some sort of interest or passion that's gotten us to the table and something that we represent. And Mm -hmm. so for me, a lot of the work that I did historically had been working with medically underserved. So I worked in federally qualified health centers for a long time. And then in the progression of my career, um, I obtained a master's in public health because I was really working on value-based contracting and then doing more population health kind of Work uh, and then, you know, when I when I left El Rio to join Tabula Rasa Healthcare, which was Symphonia, um, it was basically starting to use telehealth platforms and 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 digital health platforms to be able to do more of that population health management. So, it, so that's how come I've sort of been able to sh- evolve in my career and then also start to represent that as as being part of the president now. So interestingly enough, and everybody who's ever been president has said this to me that I've spoken to, so I haven't spoken to all the presidents, but they always say, you'll be careful because there's gonna be a wrench in the plans that you have for what you (laughs) think you're gonna stand for. And then something that will like totally hit you blindsided and then you're gonna have to take that on. Um, perfect example is a pandemic. Nobody yeah. expected we'd be in a COVID pandemic during my presidential year or Michael Hogue, right. who was right before me. And, you know, it is so funny because even though that's been significant, right, there's been so yeah. much work that pharmacists have stepped into and, and really helped to propel. I can still bring in the, the flavor of my platform, which is medically underserved. The, the people that have been, um, really, uh, marginalized during this whole pandemic and still bring that to the table and then still bring the things that I really care about telehealth, which boomed during the pandemic, Uh, but then bring in the digital health, bring in all of those other things of how we had to manage patients when we were trying to also protect ourselves and protect our community. And so it sort of feels like this situation at the time really reflects all of the things that I've had to come yeah. through in my career and like really showcase them now. And and it's so funny because it happened for Michael Hogue the same way. He was an immunization guy. <laughs> like he was the guy and he's the guy who happened Isn't that to be. not crazy? Yeah. It's amazing. I just feel like we were the people that were meant to be here at this specific time for whatever reason. Um, so that's, that's how it happens. Yeah.
0: That's fascinating because Michael's immunization, your telehealth, those are like right on top of each other. What are the odds of that? It's, are it's are crazy. Odds? Absolutely. APHA, for example, how many board members are there?
1: Um, I Roughly about, gosh, I have to do the counting, but about 14, 15, something like that. Are you
0: saying that the talents you have, that when people somehow, when you're voted onto that board, are they looking on purpose for different... Gifts you bring to the table or is that by campaigning that naturally the board fills out with different gifts or you say, hey, I can bring technology to the table. I mean, it's got to be through the election process, right?
1: I think it's more through the slating process because when we're looking for candidates for the board, they do look at things like geography representation. Oh. they look for different fields to be represented. So it's more in that slating process where where some of that happens. and then definitely, you know, some people come with a lot of diversity. they've right. had multiple careers, uh, and so maybe they they were slated because they lived in a geography, but then, yeah. oh, by the way, they happen to represent these two or three areas. and then you know, by the time you get to the board, there's been the people that they're slating typically have these. They're known. They have some experiences that are unique. They're very active in the profession. So, so you're 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 definitely picking people that um, tend to reflect things like entrepreneurship and things like that that would be unique and that's what you know basically gets them to be part of some of these processes. Gotcha. But the But the slating is really where that's at. There's been this whole discussion around diversity, equity, and inclusion and making sure it's balanced by gender, balanced by diverse backgrounds. So even those things to try to become even more inclusive of an organization, it's just that next step of how to do that even more.
0: Let's say the U.S. Open golf tournament or something like that. In theory, you got every golfer can move up the ranks and- in theory, you could do that through, I guess, the U.S. political process where you could rise up through the ranks. And I know there's slating there. But in this case, the board itself says we're going to put certain people on the slate.
1: There is a call, though, for people to, like, actually either nominate themselves, so self-nominate, or be other people can nominate you. And then typically, the way it is kind of the same process that you're talking about with a golfing, because a lot of the members, right, it really is. You have to be a member, first of all. Then there's different uh, section interest groups that you can participate in. So a lot of people start with those roles. They'll join a section interest and then they run for a position there. Then they sort of kind of go up the ranks within the different opportunities that they're slated for there. And then definitely the more people that you meet over the course of your career as as being a member – it gets the, the people there to know you, to recognize the work that you do, to see your contributions within the um, APHA organization and then within your professional career. And so a lot of those are the same people that will nominate you and vote for you. So if you're a very active member to start, uh, and it can start as soon as you're a student because they're student members, um, those are the people that tend to rise all the way up and then eventually sit on the board and then be president. I took a slightly different path. I didn't go up the ranks in that same way because I was working a lot with like the um, APHA Foundation doing Project Impact Diabetes. And then I did some work with our 340B uh, Pharmacy Services Support Center. So I wasn't a traditional so you can still do it in a non-traditional way. Cause that was my experience. Uh, but the more traditional path is going through the section, it, the sections, and then kind of going up and, uh, um, ascending that way.
0: Sandra, you went back to school after you graduated from pharmacy 10 years later. Now, mm-hmm. one could look at you and say, well, you just wanted the skills to do this. However. At Symphonia, though, you were the CEO. So it's not like you did this just to gain some skills. You went to school to rise to the CEO status. Is that right?
1: It is correct. And, you know, a lot of it is because when I was growing up, you know, when I was seeing people, even when I was sitting in pharmacy school, sitting in the chair, you know, in pharmacy school and in the lecture hall. I remember looking very closely at the people that would come and speak to us and they were phenomenal, right? They had this expertise and they were coming to lecture because they had some, some amazing thing that got them invited to be in those positions. And so throughout the trajectory of my career, every time I would look at the people that I wanted to be or the things that I wanted to do, a lot of times they had dual degrees, like they would have an MD, MPH or a a farm MBA or some combination and my passion has always been advocacy and like really doing like legislative you know policy work to change a system that's broken because we see so many people experiencing on a day-to-day problems and and it's one after the other after the other how do we actually fix a system and then how do we fix a whole you know, a whole group of, of, of situations, it, it takes policy. So that's, that's essentially what drove me to get my uh, MPH that I wanted to be in a similar position as, as those people that I saw as being leaders. And that's why I got my MPH. And, and even now, I, and I always say this to my students, I'm like, go and find the job that you want to do and go and look at the qualifications, right? What are they? What are they five years experience? It's a certificate, whatever that is, and Prepare yourself. Go and get them because that's essentially going to give you what you need in order to apply in whatever your time frame is, if it's five years from now, 10 years from now. But you got to start investing now uh, to do that because those positions don't just fall on your lap. You have to work for them and you have to separate yourself and differentiate yourself to get there.
0: Well, my wife and I talk about that. I'm not near retirement age, but we always talk about what we're going to do in retirement. What kind of people are we going to be and what are we going to do? Yeah. And I heard before someone say, don't look at this in some kind of a um, nebulous dreamlike world. They said, pick out a couple people that you think are doing what you might want to do and look at them you know look at their life see what they're doing look at actual people so you you did that with the people coming talking to you and these people usually had two degrees
1: that's right and i love linkedin now because i see i can follow people i could see their career path the schools, the certificates, even the recommendations other people give. I mean, it's so nice, like we never used to have that when we were growing up, right? Like you were lucky if you got somebody's business card and then good luck finding them because people change jobs. But now you follow people over a course of time and you see when they move to a different position and you see what certificates, what publications they have. So there's even more information now uh, for you to be looking at, at those people that you admire or that you know have influence and then try to sort of position yourself in that same way to get to that, whatever endpoint you want to reach.
0: Absolutely. I do that actually for the show. When someone's going to be on the show, I don't want to learn everything about them because that's a boring Mm -hmm. interview. So if like someone writes a book, conventional wisdom says, make sure you read Mm -hmm. the book. Now, Larry King, who was a good interviewer, he said he never read the book because he wanted to be in the same position Mm -hmm. as the listeners were. And thankfully for me, I kind of picked the lazy route out. So I'm going to pick whoever (laughs) says something that's easier for me. But yeah, LinkedIn's amazing because I'll go on there before a show and I'll say, I'm going to get 10 points of this person. And I don't use the questions. The questions just come from our conversation. But it's amazing. If you go to their history, go to where they live, and then you can go into what groups they follow, what people they follow, who are some of their connections and things like that. You can get a really good picture of someone from from LinkedIn. It's really amazing.
1: And I find it to be super helpful. And and I, and I used to, you know, I used to think it was quite a stagnant platform when I first started to use it. But you know what I learned? This is one of the things that impressed me the most about LinkedIn that I never knew. So when I was working uh, at El Rio and I moved over to uh, Symphonia, I came in into Symphonia as vice president for innovation. And so that was like a title change. And I think that was like my first official title change on LinkedIn. So when I did that, Immediately like that afternoon the next day, I started getting all of this information and content on vice president. I was like, oh wow, this is pretty interesting. This is really helpful. And then when I moved to COO, Chief Operating Officer, then it unlocked another level. Now it's like the COO content and it's these connections that really help you when you're a CO. And then when I moved into CEO of Symphony, then boom, you hit the the next level, right? And you're now getting all this content for CEO, even new positions that people like now think you qualify for that you wouldn't have qualified for two or three degrees down or levels down. So that's the magic to me that I didn't know existed and and I love it. And so I've had changes like I'm executive vice president because we're part of a bigger company now and then president of APHA, you know, all these things unlock all of these new levels. It's like a game almost, but it does, it exposes you to new people. People, it exposes you to new content, to new groups, um, where you talk like there's a CEO chat, and then you 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 work with other CEOs, and you're dealing with things about you know things like sustainability during COVID, how to engage your employees, like telework, and what the new future of that is. Like just stuff that you you didn't even know existed because you didn't even have the right, uh, not the right, but a certain title and different platforms for different reasons i love twitter when i'm going through to a meeting to a conference phenomenal yeah for work linkedin uh for my family and keeping up with my social facebook um, and then instagram for essentially a younger population with that social aspect of it also so even just understanding the nuances of these different platforms has a big impact
0: Social media has got a bad rap. They say it's brought out a lot of different things in people, narcissism and different stuff like that. It hasn't created stuff like narcissists and different things. It's just exposing people. People are just kind of coming out, you know, so it's a good thing. It's a real good thing.
1: Well, I think about the benefits of it. So when my father passed away, one of the things that I was really concerned about was my mom being socially isolated because her and my dad, like they met each other in like elementary school and they spent so much time together. And I was really worried about her living alone. So, you know, we got her a smartphone and a Apple iPad and then connected her to cousins and all these family members she hadn't been connected in years and it's really allowed for her to have this new like social connection and 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 reconnect with people so i look at that like i'm an i'm an optimist uh, by nature and i really look at ways to leverage good things and so for me that's where it's really been tremendous in fact just yesterday i went to dinner with a, a friend here and we were talking about a classmate from literally from elementary school and we found her on facebook and we were just like Oh my gosh, let's reconnect. She lives in Germany now, but we were so like happy to just see how she was doing. And I would never, never would you ever have had this earlier when this didn't exist. Um, so I, I love those are the the good connections that can happen if you if you use these tools effectively.
0: When you become CEO, do you lie there in your bed at night and say, "I'm CEO now"? I know you didn't abuse your power trip as CEO, but did you have feelings of like I'm awesome now?
1: Fess up. So this is an interesting question. I think every position I've ever been at has always been like a position I never even expected to have. Like I came to I came to Symphonia and. VP for innovation, and then because of need, because it was a growing company that was a startup, became COO, which I never imagined I was going to do, and then eventually CEO. And I think what you think of when you're in these roles, at least for me, and maybe not the same for other people, is just... Like a tremendous amount of uh, overwhelming responsibility for the people that work with you and just to try to maintain, uh, you know, positions that are satisfying that that you connect with with all of these people like you always imagine, oh, if I was CEO, I could do all these things. Well, the reality is, first of all, is we all have a boss. Everybody has a boss, even the CEO. Everybody has a boss. It's either a board or it's whoever it is. There's always another boss. So as much as you think you're in power or you have some sort of thing, there's always somebody that you always, at the end of the day, have to respond to. So that's a very much. I think people truly need to know that. Even the president, right? They have the people that vote for them that they have to respond to in all of these things. So you're never truly ultimately in charge of anything, (laughs) except maybe yourself. Um, Right. But I mean, it's cool, right? It's cool to get to a position like that, that you just like didn't even realize that you had an opportunity for. Like Especially when we go into healthcare professions, I never thought I'd be working administrative, first of all. I thought I was gonna be working clinical care, seeing patients, and then just because of the trajectory of my career, and then trying to replicate these models to help more patients, I just found that I could do it more effectively, doing program designs and policy and all that, that it to- took me in an administrative route Um, And so it was interesting to wake up and say, yeah, I'm CEO, but at the same time, I don't know, sometimes it is so much on your shoulders and there's so much stress. I I really like I I empathize for people that are in these positions where they have to make these very critical decisions. And even right now in COVID, even more concerning. Imagine all of those uh, people that had to make determinations about essential workers like who they continue to employ even the decisions about coming back in a getting your employees to come back in a safe way all of these are things that really land on your shoulder and so there's a lot of I feel like stress and aging that comes when you're in like those positions trying to make the right decision and I hope I'm a good you know a good person enough to think about the considerations of every single person down the line. And, you know, I don't know about every other company, but those are the things that keep me up at night in this position. And it's not always fun. It's just a lot of responsibility.
0: Well, I think the problem is, and this is what was demonstrated to me on a very small level. When I first became the president of our family business, I was really in a bad spot because I had the responsibility to to lead and do it right, but not all the authority. Mm-hmm. Now I do, but what I'm thinking of when I hear you talk about that, of having all the people you're responsible for still, as CEO then, you've got a crap load on your plate, mm-hmm. but you can't just snap your finger and say, everything's gonna happen that I want to happen because you've got your other bosses too. So you're really in a tough spot sometimes it seems.
1: You made the same point, right? Like sometimes you have all the authority, but not necessarily all of the ability to do what you need to do because there's all these other competing factors. So it's almost like what you think it is and then the reality of what it is. And it's always, uh, you know, be careful what you wish for because you might get it. And then, then you realize, oh, my gosh, absolutely. Then you start understanding why why the CEO gets paid a little bit more. And then sometimes it's gross, right? Like I absolutely don't agree with like this differential between like the employee, but truly the level of responsibility, like not sleeping at night, the concern about the finances, you have a lot of people's lives um, in your hand because of, you know, it's their job, it's their livelihood, it's the things that you want to make sure they're successful uh, and that your company is successful so that these, you know, people stay employed. Those are things that just people don't even think about that as being part of those responsibilities uh, that are very, very critical. And then like right now, especially with COVID, again, I just go and think about, you know, how to do it right, how to make sure you still have um, a sustainable organization during this very incredible pandemic and then come out okay on the other side and hopefully have, have made sure that all of those employees were taken care of Uh, we're healthcare providers. We, we need to take care of ourselves so we can take care of others, making sure that those individuals, um, are being taken, taken care of appropriately and correctly so that they can be effective.
0: All right, Sandra. So when you went then from CEO and then your company kind of merged or got bought, Mm
1: -hmm. we were, yep, we were bought by Tabula Rasa healthcare. And then, um, I was then the, the lead for this division, which is, um, it's Symphonia still, but it was um, the health plan and payers division is what they called us within this new.
0: How many people were you CEO over?
1: Um, for Symphonia about anywhere from like 650 to 750 employees because of the, we have contracts across the country with different colleges of pharmacy. So there were a lot of uh, FTEs as a result of that. So about, say about 750.
0: Then you go to Tablua Rasa mm-hmm. and how many people in that company?
1: So altogether the company is about right now roughly about fifteen hundred. So we we brought in a huge amount of FTEs when we joined just because of the way that we were doing the work that we were doing.
0: And you're executive vice president now. Correct. How many like executive vice presidents are there? And then is there like a CEO right above you now?
1: Yes, and actually everything's in transition. We're actually merging because they acquired other companies, not just Symphonia. They acquired uh, Prescribe Wellness, is another company. There's a company out of Australia, Dose Me. So when when you look at the strategy for Tabula Rasa Healthcare, it's really medication optimization on a on a variety of things. And really the the CEO that we all report to now is Cal Knowlton, who's a pharmacist, and his wife, Ursula Knowlton. They were the founders of Tabula Rasa Healthcare. And so it's really great, because it is a lot of pharmacists within this organization. So we all have that mission, right, which is to really advance the work that pharmacists do, address medication safety, make sure people are taking the medication in an optimal way. And then there's a different division. So the different vice presidents are for the different divisions, which have been the companies that have been acquired. And then we're actually now merging divisions together because it's so synergistic merging them together versus keeping them um, siloed. So, uh, so that's sort of the evolution of where the organization is at right now doing that, that integration.
0: When you found out you were merging and you were no longer going to have that CEO designation Were you moping around the house and depressed because that label got taken from your name?
1: I wasn't. um, No, not at all. Because honestly, it's so it's different like levels, right? So it's again, it sort of goes back to that level analogy.
0: Because I know you're still the CEO. I mean, you're still the head of that thing. It's just that that label's not there, though.
1: Yeah, no. And it's to me, it's it's okay because then you start understanding the structure. Like you could be the CEO of your consulting firm and it's an end of one.
0: Right. right. Right? Or you could
1: be a CEO of a a company of 10. So the titles get less as a company gets bigger. So like now you're talking about an Amazon, right? Like they have so many different titles. There's only one CEO. So you can't have 16 CEOs within an organization. It just doesn't make any sense. So within a, you might have a lesser title, but it's a bigger company. And so that title might even carry more weight and more responsibility than the CEO of a 10 person shop so those are kind of like just even just in the you know the evolution of my career and the titles as they change you really have to look at what the scope is of what your responsibility is what the organization is where they fall within you know the companies like is it a top 10 fortune 500 or is it you know in just a really tiny company that's local and then i always look at things like that is it local impact which is important there is nothing um I mean, that's really critical, right? Local, state, federal, world. Do you have international implications for the work that you do? And so at all of those levels, those different titles mean different things and there's different responsibilities. So it didn't bother me not to be CEO. Uh, What I loved more is having, you know, more resources and then actually ability to collaborate and to bring in new solutions as you have access to them because you now have new um, you know new partners that you didn't have access to before and I think that was one of the really great things about how it just again in my career I started seeing one patient at a time and then trying to do more population health and then trying to figure out how to scale and with with all of that comes new resources that you can utilize to do the work that you want to do more effectively and you're not having to do everything yourself because when you first start off and I remember very clearly I was Doing some clerical work because I didn't have somebody to take, um you know, certain things, appointments, make appointments for me. Like I had to start doing that. When you get into these other new positions now, you've got executive assistants and you've got, you know, these new technology tools and all these things that weren't available to you before.
0: Do you find when you raise up the ranks with different leaders, do you ever talk to like another leader or someone from another company and just shake your head and say, how the hell did they get that spot? through whatever nepotism or politics or something, or are you finding that the people in these spots are always pretty sharp because they've been sifted pretty well to get up there?
1: I'm very surprised about what I found out <laughs> coming up the ranks. You know, I'm I'm, uh, um,
0: spill it out. Let's go.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, you know, just, Yes, I have found that some people. I'm like, I don't know why you're in the position that you're in. Maybe luck, maybe whatever it is. Um, I do find. I mean, for me specifically, like my my situation is so unique. I'm a woman, so I don't see a lot of other women, right? It's still not equally balanced from that. I'm Hispanic. When you look at when you look at uh, Latino women. I mean it's less than one percent I mean it's crazy yeah. so I come up and so I bring a totally different worldview sometimes when I'm sitting around a boardroom, and, and and then I see you know the not a lot of diversity sometimes um and so then I wonder I'm like uh, why why them and not you know somebody else and I know so many other more qualified people even you know you look at uh, and I've sat on a lot of boards and I have sat on a, um, a lot of groups and, and and looking around the table I'm like I find that It's surprising that um, some people are where they're at. That absolutely, absolutely an observation that I've had. And some people are phenomenal. Some people absolutely, no doubt, deserve the position that they're in. But a lot of times, uh, there are definitely more qualified people that should probably be sitting there that are not.
0: And I know that you're a positive person, and I try to approach things positively, but it's more fun to get the dirt. All right, so here's a question what traits do you think are some of those people missing as you go around this imaginary room what are some traits that there's some people in leadership that and again we're not trying to pump ourselves up we're just chit chatting here Mm -hmm. but what are some traits that some of the people in this position you think are missing like how are they missing that skill what kind of skills are they missing
1: I think just understanding of the work that they're leading, right? A lot of times, and I have always, like, I've been concerned about, I never want to lose because I've been in an administrative role so far removed from the actual work that you represent, that you don't even know what you're talking about. That's the biggest surprise for me. I'm like, you know, wow, you don't even know what we do. You don't know what we sell. You don't know that that's pretty big to me.
0: When they're talking, you know that they're missing something because you know enough about even their frontline workers.
1: Yeah, about frontline workers or the organization or whatever that that you're talking about, right? Or even just staying abreast of like the changes that are coming in. I think one of the things that we always have to do is stay ahead of the curve, right? Like read and uh, keep up with the administrations, whoever that is. Understand what the changing politics are. Um, You know, and I think we do this as a profession too. We go back to what we thought it should be or what it was versus what we need to be doing to be able to adapt. And that's hard, I get it. Like I, change is so hard for people. Don't just stay here, like look up and like look to see what the world is around you. And cause I see this all the time with pharmacists, right? Pharmacists like, well, it's frustrating, frustrating. But I'm like, have you talked to a doctor lately? They are super frustrated too. They have the same problems. Now they have to report everything, outcomes, value-based. You know, they have the same, they have to see X number of patients now. They have to do RVUs. I've been a medical director, which is unique for a Pharmacists, so to get the perspective of of what the medical side is dealing with which is very there's a lot of similarities to the challenges that the pharmacists are facing too they're they're facing consolidation all the time too there's not as many small doctor practices as there used to be there's not a lot of small independents like there used to be they're getting bought up i mean there's a lot of parallels so instead of like kind of like living these parallel lives if you actually spoke to each other and and got together and advocated for you these changes that are frustrating you might be more effective versus not even un- understanding that it's also happening to them and a lot of times we're put in more of an uh, oppositional point of view oh like ama doesn't support us or this or APh. i'm like we actually have more similarities and differences and yes there are going to be issues that maybe we don't fully agree on but at the end of the day a lot of us have the same priorities like we all went to school to be uh providers to help people right like none of us went to school to be rich i mean there people get rich in the process but I don't think that anybody thought, like they wanted to be respected, they wanted to take care of people, they wanted to make a difference. Uh, and it's just all of these other factors that end up causing the friction uh, where you could actually be collaborating more than, than being antagonistic.
0: Going around this imaginary room, how do you think people lose that touch? They've stopped talking to the frontline workers. How do they lose touch in this example you're giving?
1: Do you pick up more responsibility. It gets harder, for sure. It gets harder to try to go back and do some of that work. You're busy. Right. You're busy. So you you don't tend to like maybe talk to the people that you used to talk to and you start getting into these other uh, uh, things. But I think you should always make the time to go back to the roots, right? To talk to patients, do focus groups, like all of those things that end up getting you reconnected, even your own experience. And this always happens, right? People that... um, don't realize how complicated the healthcare system is until they personally have to live through it or they have a family member. And it's not just for this issue of healthcare, it's for any issue, right? If, you, if you've if never had um, an experience, sometimes you don't even know what it's like to live that experience because you never had the experience, but you don't put yourself in those other individuals' shoes until you have it personally happen to you. And so a lot of it is just trying to like be open to what the possibility is for somebody else to experience that. that, doesn't have to happen to you for you to actually have empathy uh, towards that individual and to try to, you know, see a point of view that might be different from yours. And that's hard. That's hard.
0: That's something that as the leader, you could say, Hey, I want a focus group, or I want to see a sampling of the reviews that the patients or these workers are giving each other or whatever there's ways to do it especially now in the talking about technology there's a lot of ways to get a sample of what's happening
1: well yeah and and it's even some of it is even being driven by some of the changes in the administration and how payers are covering like i'll bring up an example like social determinants of health right everybody's like finally starting to have that conversation i'm my whole career has been about social determinants of health with El Rio and it's I'm glad today we're starting to see payers talk about issues that impact patients things like transportation affordability but it's taken a long time to get there Uh, I'm glad we're getting there it's taken a little bit too long Um, and then some things like the pandemic have exposed how significant Uh, social determinants are for some people more than others. Uh, But it is it is to your point, like you could actually have already seen that experience that you could have been in a practice. You could ask people that are living this every day. You could do a survey. Um, You can ask your neighbor, you know, what's their experience? They're not a pharmacist. They're not a CEO. They might be a blue collar person that's experiencing challenges and learn from that. Uh, and then figure out, oh, wow, I didn't even realize that was the situation.
0: And they're not giving you bull crap answers to try to no, please no. you or something. You're just going out and finding these. Correct. So we're going around this room. That person might be a little bit out of touch. What's another trait that might be missing from someone that you shake your head and say, how'd that person get there?
1: I think one of the things that always surprises me too is that a lot of people just simply don't know how to manage. They either haven't had management experience or they don't let their leaders or the expertise that they brought to the table just do their job, right? Like you either micromanage or get in their way or not let the people that are actually the qualified individuals do their job. You, you make it harder for them.
0: How'd they get there then? How are they in that spot that let's say they've had to raise up through four or five jobs?
1: For many reasons, sometimes it's who you know. You know, sometimes I always, like I, like, I think equal opportunity is really important, but I don't think it's applied like that. Like, I don't know if you've experienced that when you just go in a randomly apply in a position. I feel like a lot of times They already have somebody in mind for these positions, or like, you know, there's somebody internal. So it's really hard to break in if you're an external candidate. Um, So a lot of it is truly like who you know or, you know, what, you know, relationships you've had in the past.
0: Nepotism, right? Going all the way back.
1: So that's the thing. So if you have those kinds of things and you don't actually do an equal review or an equal opportunity or actually judge people for their actual qualifications, or even when you're in those positions actually doing evaluations, right, and performance assessments, um, in a way, because you know, you performance assessments are very interesting. We all think we do them um, and. But then when you actually go and sit and do a performance review, I don't know what your experience has been. But, you know, in the past for me, it's it, it sort of seemed like an exercise and not really actually sitting and really doing a, a really good um, performance review where you talk to people and you do constructive Feedback, And then you actually try to align skills. And if there's a gap, you actually uh, empower that person to get whatever that skill training mm. is to increase uh, their ability to do that role or whatever it is. It's It takes a lot of work to actually get somebody to be at that point where, where they have had training, where they have had feedback, you know, like an executive coach or some of those things to actually get people because I don't think anybody starts. There's like natural leaders, but it takes work and you have to always be a learner, like a lifelong learner to build on those skills, because I know I've taken a lot of uh, classes to help me be a better person. I've taken media training to be able to communicate better. I've been I've read leadership books. Um, I've you know, I read a lot just in general to try to stay up with things. I I, I definitely try to empower and mentor people. And then I. Also, try to know individuals where strengths are and where weaknesses are, and then pair people up so that they can be better together, right? Like, I know what my weaknesses are. And if I have a weakness, I try to find somebody who's better at that than me, and then try to make sure that I'm working with them to actually make us better together. So, those are the kinds of things I think that just help to build better leaders in general.
0: I'm sure if I had a weakness, I would know what it was, Sandra. (laughs) I'm the boss. Screw everybody now. I've spent years answering things, and now it's my own little kingdom. I'm the benevolent dictator, and I get to do what I want to.
1: Well, and you know, I mean, sometimes when you have entrepreneurs, like sometimes they that's the pers- personality, and that's what gets them to be um, where they're at. So you also have to, like, understand how some people get there. It's the men- the point you made earlier about – uh, people that are narcissistic, they were narcissistic before social media. Um, that's something, maybe a strength that drove them to be in this position, to create a position, a job, a new company, whatever. So you do have to know how to work with these people. Now, there's maybe nothing wrong with that. Just figuring out how to, uh, leverage the good things and then, you know, figure out a way to navigate the things that are not the good things and and be successful with that.
0: Yeah. It could be that, you know, somebody is, is maybe an entrepreneur, and then they get to a level where all of a sudden they're on this board or something like that. They haven't been used to that before. Now they got to work things out with eight people where before they were kind of their lone cowboy or cowgirl.
1: And that's hard. I mean, it's really hard. Every single job I've had, it sort of started off small. Like El Rio was small when I first joined it, and it became a huge organization. Same thing for the company here. The boards I've sat in, they were smaller organizations that grew to be bigger. Um, you know, being president of APHA. So I've seen these kinds of things in different situations, startups, non-startups, profit, not-for-profit. So, and that to me has been the biggest education personally, mm-hmm. like having sat around the table. And I remember like one of my first boards with, was with National Center for Worker Health. All of this, all of the, the board members were either CEOs, CFOs, um, uh, chief medical officers. And I was a pharmacist. So I had none of these chief titles. But I sat there and I took that as an opportunity to learn from these individuals who were living these very, you know, complicated positions and working with underserved populations that struggled. I learned a lot from them. I learned so much from them that it like, I feel like because of my exposure and sitting at, around that table, that what that's what led me to my own CEO role it was like a like i was in a a free college classroom getting the the expertise from these people and then at the same time what i was giving to them was all of these services that pharmacists could bring to their health centers to their clinics we were talking about 340b and how to maximize you know using that to help more people and like so i brought so much information and knowledge to them and some of them didn't even have an in-house pharmacy when we first started and they started an in-house pharmacy because they are like oh wow i hadn't even considered that so those are the things to me that when you go and join a new group or a new situation like what are you going to take from that what are you trying to give and take right what's like the the reward and the and the give back and pay forward for that and so i'm still part of that group and i still so find so much value in speaking to them cuz they show me the world of of the finances sustainability of the medical officers all of those that are as challenged as pharmacists are And then again, try to look at the bigger picture of healthcare and know that we're not the only ones that are struggling in certain aspects, but how can we work together to have better solutions?
0: We're imagining a board that's filled with maybe not the people that we would like sitting there. One of them has lost touch. Another one maybe doesn't manage as well. If you could pick a third person to say, how did that person get there? What skill would they be lacking?
1: I think just effective communication and transparency, sometimes it is like, um, you know, people want to hold certain information or they they don't share. I've always been very transparent and I love to over communicate Uh, and, you know, obviously, you've got to be careful with some of the things that you share. But I truly find that if you're more transparent and like you, you share the real the real picture and give people more insight about why you have to make decisions, then there's a lot more understanding and sometimes decisions are made and that you have no idea. And people take a lot of things personally or they internalize it or they think it's their fault.
0: They make up the worst picture.
1: Correct. They they take, they take it to an extreme. And then when you actually find out the real reason, it's so far removed from what you thought. And so that really matters, right? It helps like morale and all of these things. So for me, communication, transparency are very key. And then if you don't have that, then there's like that mistrust that can that can occur. Uh, so I do find that sometimes people aren't fully transparent uh, where it would help them instead of be a detriment.
0: They might think it's going to like lessen their advantage or lessen their power or something like that. When in fact, they might've been stung before, but if they do it right, especially you can probably pick up quite a bit of trust and cooperation from that. Absolutely. So let's take these three of losing touch, managing and communication. People aren't born and put in the corporate table. You know, they've spent years getting up there. These are skills that can be learned, right?
1: I think so. I mean, I think if you look at, you know, you probably looked at your own leaders that you've worked under, what kind of aspects about them it sort of goes to the back back to the same discussion we had earlier what qualifications do they have and what do you want to see in yourself and learn from those people that you've uh, seen that have been great leaders and those that haven't been as effective and try to pick up those traits or like you know buff up your your skill set for those things that you admire um, but you do have to have exposure though sometimes we do end up coming into our little world and we kind of keep our heads down and we're not looking up or, or, or you know doing the kind of things that it takes more work like board board work for example i've sat on a number of boards it's a lot of work to be on a board it's volunteer time it's all of this extra effort that nobody pays you to do but you do it and why because there's these other things that you're gaining you're gaining the networking you're gaining the exposure you're getting um, opportunities to learn new things or new ideas but you have to go out and seek that and then you have to go out and do that it doesn't just come to you uh, so, I, I again, I mention that because sometimes people are frustrated about their situation and how they don't have opportunities and things like that. But, again, they don't just come to your door. You have to go out and seek them sometimes and, and then get that exposure. Because the more uh, opportunities like that you have, you'll get to meet some of those people that have these skills that you really admire and then hopefully – even ask them to be a mentor or um, to help you out and, and just give you their life experience, how they got there, what they learned, uh, uh, what, you know, what worked, what didn't work, and then see what you can apply to your own experience.
0: It's unfortunate because sometime you'll get people that are, while well, you're working for an organization, let's just say a pharmacy or let's say a midsize, you know, hospital or something. And if there's a negative culture there that's running through the business you're just not even exposed to real leaders <laughs> sometimes. And boy, that's one thing I loved about the, uh, or I love. I've been off the board now for a few years, but I was on our county pharmacy board, just part of the state board, and then, you know, a part of the APHA. I was in that for 20 some years. Then, I loved going to those meetings because it just gets you out of your cocoon and you run into some local leaders who are really good leaders. And some of them have gone on to do other things, but that's an important statement you made there about getting out and just seeing some good leaders, if not at least reading them. And now we've got the benefit of YouTube Mm of... I was just on my walk this morning and I'd put on some business leaders and just at conferences and stuff where they've talked. And it's really cool. You can get in touch with some good leaders, even though maybe you're stuck in one building or you're performing in one building for years and years.
1: Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. Like they have all these TEDx talks, right? Like all these uh, Mm -hmm. ways that you could hear about people's experiences or, you know, some, some quick podcast and it's phenomenal what you learn um but you have to do that work and i always get inspired but you do you have competing priorities like i I wish i could sit and read a book all day long and and Mm -hmm. and have that luxury of that time but whatever you know whatever time you can carve out invest it in in yourself and then figure out how to get exposure because i just my my biggest i feel like sad for people that went to school for such a long time and then they're not professionally satisfied by the career that they picked. And we see that a lot now, especially there's burnout, there's frustration. They, it wasn't what they thought it was going to be. Uh, but truly you, you truly have the power to make it different. You know, you don't have to be stuck with what you think is a status quo. Um, the only thing that's keeping you from making a change is, is your own self and, you know, what you want to do. And uh, I always love education. I think education has given me so many opportunities. I've been I always say I, I've been getting a degree a decade, you know, trying to get a degree, a decade to to be able to do that. And I thought, oh, wow, I'm in this decade. I haven't gotten a new degree. Um, uh, right. so, and I have thought about it. I'm like, oh, wow, maybe I should, I, like, I thought I would love to do uh, law cause I love law. I thought that was one of the other degrees I considered when I was doing my, uh, MPH MBA, because I've been working a lot with contracts and uh, business kind of things. But one area that I'm fascinated with right now is just like the whole HIT, you know, health information, software development, um, all of that right now is go coding apps all of that kind of stuff because there's so much use and application in healthcare and if you think about electronic health records and how we're communicating remote monitoring with patients to me that's just this whole new arena that wasn't even available when I was first like stepping out of pharmacy school that are now new opportunities for uh, for our profession to just really enhance what we do but just with that new t- technology footprint
0: would you get a coding degree I know you didn't say you were going to do that.
1: You know, not a degree, but I get a certificate because I've even looked at, you know, Google has like these six months. I
0: was just going to mention that. That's going to start bursting some of these colleges. But yeah, they've got that six month thing. It's like. 600 bucks or something and you get a Google degree?
1: Yeah, it's so reasonable. Honestly, like to me, I've been recommending that to students. I'm like, man, if you didn't get your residency that you want to go and get one of these certificates, you're going to be super valuable. Personally, I literally 50% of the people that we work with here are IT people. So I've learned a lot uh, around the language of change management, you know, agile, you know, software development, security. My goodness, everything around cybersecurity, all of that's really critical and important. Um, So I've had to sort of like learn all of that as I've been going uh, and doing this work. And I just find that it's so incredible when we have somebody who understands the healthcare delivery model and then the IT and then marries both of them to be able to do it more effectively.
0: For sure. Well, you're bilingual in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Was that from birth pretty much, Sandra? Were you like bilingual? I mean, was that spoken in the home or did you have to learn one of those?
1: So I had to learn English. I My first language was Spanish and my parents still to this day don't speak English because we grew up in the border town of Nogales. And so we like the community itself, even though we're on the American side, I'd say 95% of the population only spoke Spanish. The town is Nogales, Sonora and Nogales, Arizona. We were on the Arizona side, but my parents were from Sonora from Mexico. And I, I would remember when I was younger in elementary, I thought I was going to forget my English in the summer, like when we would finish school because we didn't speak English at home. You would go to government buildings, anywhere you would say something in English, you would people would respond in Spanish. And I think that's still pretty much the experience to this day. So... Uh, I was probably late elementary before I learned how to speak English. Is that right? Yeah, so uh, it's
0: late elementary.
1: Late, like fifth, fifth grade. Yeah. All right.
0: So the point I'm making there, and you're a good example of the point, is that I think some people don't want to learn programming. They think, well what am I going to learn, Ruby on Rails or C++ or something? I'm going to get stuck in that. I think the argument against that is like, no, learn it. You're going to learn so much by one language. Like, you learning a second language, I'm sure you could learn a third and a fourth much easier than I could learn one language because your mind now has two separate language pathways. I just think it's easier. And I think the same with computer. I think that if you got something like that, I'm not sure how specific Google's one is, but I think if you got that, You'd learn so much else just besides maybe one language they're focusing on.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I actually put my own daughter in an immersion school and to learn Spanish, like learn it really well, not just like conversational. Yeah. Uh, and it's like I told her, this is the greatest gift I will give to you is for you to be bilingual. Because for me, my f- first, like in my career at, at the Federally Qualified Health Center, I would spend 75% of my day speaking in Spanish to the patients that I work with. And even now, even till this day, I I still get tapped about helping with translation. In fact, I was at the APHA board meeting this past week and I was asked to do a a video on vaccine hesitancy for um, the Department of Health and Human Services. And I recorded three videos in English and three videos in Spanish. And they were so happy to have a healthcare provider that could speak in Spanish to like be able to do this recording. And then again, it goes back to what I was mentioning before, helping underserved populations. It was going to be used for agricultural workers, the yep. National Center for Farm Worker Health. So it's like literally all of these things coming together. Uh, language, helping underserved populations, speaking in in both languages, uh, and creating these videos—it just is such a gift to be able to do that. And I've always found it is such an incredible tool. Uh, and I, my my favorite story, and this happened about about three weeks, four weeks ago. I volunteered for a COVID clinic, here in Tucson, and it's called COVID After Dark. So it was um a, i volunteered as non-medical, so I didn't want to you know try the medical route because I wanted to try the non-medical, which the role for that was to stand on the sidewalk and just welcome people to get the vaccine in in a popular area in Tucson. And I I stood on the sidewalk and I just would talk to people, say, hey, come and get the vaccine. It's here. You don't have to make an appointment, all of that. But one of the best stories of that night was this uh, this woman that was walking by selling. Um, she was a street seller selling little trinkets on her cart She didn't speak English. And I'm like, hey, you know, in Spanish, come and get your vaccine. She's like, I don't. I don't have insurance. It's okay. You don't have to have insurance. I don't, I can't read. I'm like, it's okay. And this is all in Spanish. I said, I will read with you. You know, I will help you fill out your paperwork. He's like, well, I don't have an ID. I'm like, you don't have to have an ID. So by the end of the, our conversation, she got her vaccine and she's like, thank you for, you know, like convincing me to do this. I never thought in ever that I was going to get the vaccine just because I didn't have all the all of these things. So I felt like I had to be at that place at that time. And, and to help this woman was absolutely one of the most professionally satisfying um, experiences that I've had. And it goes back to all the things again, all the things that I've worked up to in my life and, and being bilingual and being able to do that was just a, a A wonderful experience to to do that
0: we were talking earlier about how you were kind of enamored by people that had two degrees and then just recently you were talking right now and you were saying that the power of bringing two professions together in yourself of having someone skilled in two different things that's a really cool thing there's a lot of power in that of seeing how two powerful things whether it's law or computers or language or something that's powerful
1: it is. It does. It opens up just new opportunities and uh, just a different level that is, uh, it's unlocking. (laughs) Like I said, it's like unlocking this new level for you.
0: Speaking of leadership, does the APHA have any struggle getting leaders in terms of the lower entry people? For example, I was on the marketing committee or something for my state association. And I got on that basically because I put my name in the hat. Does the APHA have to fight off people because there's too many people that want to be on certain committees and so on? Is that like a, oh, let's call it a prestigious position or is there any challenge trying to find people?
1: It can be a little bit of both. So sometimes they have more interest for certain positions more than others. And then sometimes they do, they, they need more volunteers than are willing to run. So sometimes you'll see, you know, maybe a position that is not slated by even two individuals. Maybe it's just one individual. And I think that's the same for a lot of different groups. In general, my impression has been that, you know, a lot of these positions, like anything else, require more work. So it's, it's, it's hard because people do have a job, right? Like they have their professional job Uh, But at the same time, people also understand if I do these roles, maybe it will give me more of the opportunities I want to do for the kind of job that I want. So you end up seeing like depending on um, the different positions that there might be more interest in one area versus another. Um, Sometimes and, and it could be seasonal too. maybe like this year we have 10 candidates for one slot and then the following year for whatever reason, maybe you only have a couple for one slot. So it, it changes with time, it changes with different priorities, it changes with different needs. Um and so and so sometimes we'll find that that, that does happen in both ways. So where, yeah. where there's a lot of interest and then sometimes there's not enough interest. Uh, but I think consistently, like if you're part of the organization and you want a leadership position, I I really feel like there's always room to be able to have a leadership role, and a, le- a leadership role is not just a title either, right? Or not just a, an office that you won or that you held. It could be a project that you start. It's a networking. We have the Engage platform, for example. A lot of my actual opportunities that I got through APHA was because I was doing a billing code in my practice, and I was piloting it, and then I shared that. And then others were like, oh, how did you do that? Can I learn from you? Tell me how you did this. What kind of policies and procedures? So that ended up becoming like a leadership role. And then my expertise ended up being in billing and ambulatory care services and then billing in FQHCs. And then my own personal passion was diabetes. So I became like a leader in that area. And I started accreditation program. So it wasn't because I was president or, you know, SIG, you know, section. It was because I was doing these things. Uh, and these unique, uh, innovative types of practice models that then others wanted to learn about. And so then I was doing webinars and I was doing you know, education around that. So leadership Mm -hmm. comes in many ways and it doesn't always have to be because of a title.
0: I was in a service club. It was Kiwanis, but similar to Rotary and Lions Club and things like that. But one of the requirements was that like within the first year or two, you had to join a committee. It was remarkable how just joining a committee how that takes off because even though it's almost like a leadership role, you're actually, it's a service role, which builds a leadership role. There's a nice combination there. No, it's true.
1: I mean, it's, it's absolutely true what you're saying there because it is, it's like if you join a group and then they see you're active, then guess what? Then there's another opportunity and then another opportunity, and then it could take a life of its own. And then you're president of APHA. So, so that's
0: for sure. Uh, that's
1: basically what happened, right? I joined one group. I volunteered. I said, yes. And this, and here I am sitting to this day and that's how it happened. It was just a committee that I started or volunteered on that led uh, me for more opening of doors and more opportunities to walk through those doors.
0: You're on this board with all these misfits, not APHA. I'm talking this imaginary board of the misfits that are on there. You're on this board with the people that skills didn't seem to be up where they should be or could be for great collaboration. If you could get a hold of, let's say, young pharmacy students and you could do a TED talk to them, for example, what three points would you like to get across to young pharmacy students?
1: stay involved no matter how hard or complicated even if it's even if you can't be super active but just stay connected because that connection will really lead to opportunities later on and then hopefully uh, you won't feel that isolation sometimes that you feel when you're kind of doing your own thing so that that entire aspect of staying in a leadership organization either your local pharmacy association your state i'm in both right i'm in the arizona pharmacist association i've been in it since basically i was a student and then a professional organization, which is, it could be APHA. I'm in a number of them. I'm not just an APHA. And then, tr- you know, try to get outside of pharmacy too. That's a very key message. I can't stress that enough because we do, we get stuck and we talk to just the pharmacists when we should really be t- talking to others to know the value that we bring. And I think that there's been more power in, in me doing that and explaining what pharmacists do versus letting, we know what we do. We definitely know what we do. It's not to say don't get involved in pharmacy profession, but, but how do you actually like take that outside of pharmacy and and amplify that to the rest of the world, your neighbors, your all of that, because it really makes a difference. Um, And then I would just say, you know, definitely invest in yourself. You know, that's another key thing continue to learn, continue to pursue passions that you have. And it doesn't even have to be a formal education. It could be something like if you care about, you know, some hobby that you like, invest in it because that brings so much joy. Um, You know, I do so many other things that I really like to do. I love travel so much. Like I love spending time with my family. Uh, And all of that brings me, uh, it brings me education. I take a lot from that. Like I've even traveled to Cuba, one of my bucket list items, and I went there to learn about the healthcare system. And I learned so much how, on how they manage effective primary care. Uh, so I, even that travel piece, connecting that in some way to like bring back to my own day-to-day experience so I can invest in this. And, and so combining some of your passions together makes a big difference in how happy you will be that you ended up doing what you decided to do.
0: When you talk about getting involved, expanding your pharmacy life and so on to other professions, to hear from others, how would you do that? Let's say you're putting in your time at a community pharmacy and you feel like your life is involved in there. What would be a recommendation of reaching out to another profession?
1: Well, right now, I think it's really interesting right now. Like I actually signed up. I told you earlier about the non-medical volunteering. A lot of public health departments have a lot of call out right now for volunteer to help with COVID testing, education, medical, non-medical. So partnering with your local public health department, even, you know, like your Even your school, like your PTA, if you have kids in school, there's always so many opportunities to sit on the PTA and there's um, opportunities to kind of bring your skill sets in a different way there. Uh, There's, you know, I mean... I love like I'm a I love politics. I I really do. There's precinct committees that you can join. There's homeowners associations that you can join. All of these kind of things expose you to like how to run a meeting, Robert's rules. Like I never even knew how to do before I started all of this and now I'm you know sitting at a P A at the boardroom running my first live meeting with a hybrid with Robert's Rules. And I'm just like, wow, this is crazy. Uh, But had I not had some of those earlier experiences in my careers, I would be lost. So, but it starts a lot with some of those um, opportunities. It doesn't have to be anything big. It could be like a volunteering within, like I said, your homeowners to something more formal, um, or just even volunteering for your school, your, your kids' school, for all of these different things. There's a lot of not-for-profits out there locally also looking for board members all the time. Like they're looking for some skill set, some representation. Uh, um, A lot of them want people to help fundraise for, you know, a a charity, ADA, American Heart Association. So there's tons of opportunities there. So I would say like if there's a certain area that, that you have passion for, like Go and seek um, air, go and seek those groups out and see what help they need. And sometimes it's as simple as picking up the phone and calling and asking the question. Um, one of the my favorite stories that I'll never forget is I was reading a, a journal one day, and it was called Insulin Journal. And I remember just even opening the the front page and looking at all of the editors, and all of them were M.D.s. Every single one of them. And I'm like, wow, I'm surprised they don't even have a PharmD, like for you know diabetes and insulin, it's such a medication heavy condition, why don't they have a pharmacist on? And I literally picked up the phone and I called the editor and I said, hey, how come you don't have a pharmacist? And he's like, oh, wow, I hadn't even considered that. Do you know somebody who would be interested? And I'm like, I would love to, I would love to do this. He's like, well, send me your CV. And that's all it took. I took a cold call calling and asking a question. And I was on the editorial board for the insulin journal after that. So it's surprising that sometimes it's not this huge effort but it just was simply asking a question that nobody asked or nobody you know volunteered for that ended up leading yeah. to an opportunity that that, that that happened. So that that was just an example of something that happened very, very quickly.
0: Sandra you really put your money where your mouth is speaking of a LinkedIn and going and see people being involved and so on, one of the areas that I don't usually see a lot of people, but I saw on yours, is you got like 150 million publications that you've done along with, and I open them up, and there's other authors and things like that that you've worked with and so on. So you're not blowing smoke here. When you say you work with people and you get things done and you team worker and things like that, not to dismiss leadership. Sometimes when you say a team worker, you, have, you forget that they're also great leaders, but you've got a lot of crap you do. When I look at you and I look at me, I kind of feel a little lazy.
1: I don't know what to say about that. (laughs) I know I I, I have been very lucky in my career to, you know, publish. It's so funny. I never actually, I never worked in academia formally. I've been a preceptor and an adjunct faculty and I've published a lot, which is surprising because not a lot of people publish that are not in academia where it's a requirement for your position for like tenure and non-tenure. But it is, it's about sharing, right? It's about sharing the experiences, what worked, what didn't work, what I learned from. And I always thought that, again, it goes to that whole thing about amplifying the voice and the role for pharmacists if we share that we publish and if you look a lot of those journals are not not pharmacy journals only not pharmacy of internal medicine there's been the american diabetes association clinical diabetes more because I want to show the other groups, the other professionals um, where those are published that pharmacists do a lot, and we do it in so many different ways. So that's again, it just goes to the mission of of the work that I've always tried to do is to amplify the voice for pharmacists and and get others to really understand the value that we bring to the healthcare team. So one thing that I hopefully am is very consistent with my messaging, and I repeat myself and that message several times so people hear it.
0: We've got the right person at the head of this. Thanks, Sandra, for everything you're doing. Well,
1: I, uh, again, appreciate the opportunity. And I I thank everybody I've ever worked with who's, you know, definitely had a little piece um, to do with my success because it's taken a lot of people and a lot of collaboration to get here
0: we're all behind you and the great things that APHA is doing. It's exciting opening the LinkedIn feed every day and seeing what's new there. It's really fascinating. So thanks for everything you're doing.
1: I appreciate it. And thank you for what you're doing. I love the messaging that you're getting out and all the people that you're interviewing. It contributes to that excitement. Hopefully people see this and hear this and then want to do something more.
0: I hope they do. All right, Sandra, we'll be in touch. Thank you. You've been listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Please subscribe for all future episodes.